This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello, I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of The New Yorker magazine, and you're listening to The New Yorker Poetry Podcast. We have a special program for you today. This is a moment of historic change in the world and the United States, amid a pandemic that's only just begun to reshape our society. We've seen weeks of massive civil rights uprisings and demands for justice in the wake of continued racist police killings of Black people. Such a moment calls for radical imagination. And today I'm excited to talk with three leading American poets about the state of contemporary poetry and its role in our times. Tracy K. Smith served two terms as a U.S. Poet Laureate. Her poetry has also won an Annisfield Wolf Book Award and a Pulitzer Prize. Her latest collection is Wade in the Water. Her translations with Chang Tai Bi of poems by the late Chinese poet Yi Le will be published this fall as My Name Will Grow Wide Like a Tree. Marilyn Nelson writes poetry for adults, young adults, and children. Her honors include a Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize, at NSK Newstat Prize for Children's Literature, and a Frost Medal from the Poetry Society of America. Her new books, Papa's Free Day Party and Lubia's Quiet Roar, are forthcoming. Terence Hayes, a former MacArthur Fellow, has received a Pegasus Award for Poetry Criticism, a Hurston Wright Award for Poetry, and a National Book Award in Poetry. His most recent books are To Float in the Space Between a Life and Work in Conversation with the Life and Work of Etheridge Knight, and American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. Tracy, Marilyn, Terrence, welcome. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks. So I thought we'd start off the conversation by reading and hearing some of your work that's been published in The New Yorker. Uh, Tracy, why don't we start with you? The New Yorker published your poem, Declaration, in 2017. Is there anything uh, listeners need to know about the poem before we hear it? Yeah, well, this poem is, uh, it's a found poem. It's an erasure of the Declaration of Independence, which means I went through and redacted that text to hear what else might be speaking within or even against it. And, you know, I wrote this poem five years ago out of a sense of worry at where racial fear and violence were leading us. And um, my strategy was to look backward and see if there might be voices or perspectives from the past that could be consoling or chastening. Um, This question is still with us, um, and it's been powerfully amplified by recent loss, to put it gently. Declaration. He has sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people. He has plundered our, ravaged our, destroyed the lives of our, taking away our, abolishing our most valuable, and altering fundamentally the forms of our, in every stage of these oppressions, 
we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here, taken captive on the high seas to bear. That was Declaration by Tracy K. Smith, originally published in the November 6, 2017 issue of The New Yorker. I wonder if there's any initial thoughts we have about hearing that poem again. I was really struck by the line, the form of our, just because with poetry, we're also talking about form and a form of redress, as it were. And I think it takes such different stance than a declaration, though it, of course, is a different kind. Um, It isn't a speech, but it uses speech to, I think, think about what speech does and what speech doesn't do. Uh, And I wonder if we have any initial thoughts about that or just about erasure in general. Well, when you say form right now, and when I'm, you know, kind of on the wake of that poem, thinking about all of the actions, all of the efforts, all of the movements and um, attempts to be heard that we as Black citizens of this nation have taken, um, and they happen through, uh, you know, physical presence, through taking a knee, through language, through art. I feel in reading that poem, and I, you know, I'm not the speaker of this poem. I feel like the document is trying to tell us something. And um, even the resignation and simmering rage and our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. Um, I feel my hackles raise thinking about even in the last month, how the repeated injury seems to be um, presenting so, so much. It's uncanny the way that, you know, the language can be another metaphor for the real. Yeah. Well said. You know, we're in this moment right now where all of these patriotic efforts at civil disobedience, at peaceful manifestation um, are being called out now as anti-American by, you know, reactionary opposition. Um, And what I think is so real and true for those of us who are trying to bring the question of Black life into the national conversation as something that we should value and protect is that um, this is coming out of a love for America. Even the fact that we're, we're looking at one of America's foundational documents for guidance right. and helping us get through this crisis in America, I think it also bespeaks the sense of belief and hope uh, for the country that we do belong to and that we do claim. Well, it also points out that unrest is the start of the nation um, but also that paradox is there, that there is this you know, paradox of freedom in a land that has enslavement built into it and all sorts of tensions that are in that document. And I think what a poem does, I think all poems do this, but I think this kind of erasure points it out even more, is it's a dance between silence and speech, you know, and the sort of unspoken, I think, comes up a lot in, in that poem. Marilyn, in your poem, Pigeon and Hawk, there's a lot of what isn't said or what the kind of portent of the whole poem. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the poem before we hear it? Uh, 
a, a little bit. I suppose um, I owe a great debt to Marilyn Hacker for suggesting I write this story. I told her that this anecdote that had happened to me, and she said, you should make a poem out of it, and it can be a companion piece to another poem I had written called Minor Miracle. And she said that that way you'd have two similar hopeful stories. So that's the most useful thing I think I can say. That's great. Uh, so let's have a listen. This is Marilyn Nelson reading Pigeon and Hawk. Pigeon and Hawk. A new grad student far away from home, I took every step on trembling ground. I knew no one who were my friends. The other black student in the program ducked and rushed away when our eyes met. Seminar rooms were full of hungry dogs snapping up scraps of nodding approval. At the end of a campus reception, I accepted the offer of a ride from campus to my downtown room with bath. October. Evenings were getting cool. The walk over the bridge downtown felt dangerously long when it was dark. Did the young man who offered me a ride tell me his name? What was it about him that made me say yes thanks like a damn fool? When we were in his car and he said, oops, he had forgotten something at his place he had to pick up and ask if I'd mind if we stopped there, why did I say, okay. Did we talk during the drive? Was the radio on? Did I just watch the businesses in thinning traffic become a suburb where his apartment complex was in a woods already splendid in autumn colors, so beautiful they took my words away? When he pulled up and said I should come in, it would only take a minute. Why did I go upstairs with him, wait as the key unlocked his apartment, and go inside? The building was silent. A big window in the living room looked at parking lots with a few parked cars and the glowing trees. He said, I'll be right back, and disappeared into the bedroom. I turned to the view, thinking, of nothing, my mind a blank page that grew emptier as the minutes passed. What was he doing during those minutes as I stood dreaming like a fat pigeon in the keen purview of a circling hawk? What could he have needed to go home for that was so important he had to go there first before he drove me home? Was he wrestling with opportunity? Human horrors are not inevitable. Some people stop themselves before they cross moral divides. A drinking buddy might say, cool it, bro. A cop might take his knee off a black man's throat. A young man might come out and say, okay, let's go and drive you home. What was his name? 
That was Pigeon and Hawk by Marilyn Nelson, which appeared in the June 22nd, 2020 issue of The New Yorker. So, you know, we took that poem actually last year in the fall in 2019. And so the thing that came up for me, I guess, thinking about it always was, I, you know, I had to kind of keep pinching myself thinking about how prescient this poem was, or was it in fact evergreen? You know, is it always uh, this ending about the kneeling on a black man? So does that always apply? At the same time, the poem is, as you say, somewhat hopeful. It says human horrors aren't inevitable, um, but these other horrors that are mentioned sort of feel like they are in some way. They're happening all the time. I'm not sure when I wrote it. I think I wrote it about two years ago. I'm not sure who it was at that time, but this is a story that we keep having to see. We keep having to witness the story. And so it's always valuable to know about it, but I think it's also essential to know that sometimes people can stop themselves before stepping over that great divide. And we have to hope that we can do it too, that there are people around us who can stop themselves and will themselves to stop. Well, and you also have that friend who says, cool it, bro. You know, there, we all need that friend sometime. Uh, and sometimes it's an inner monologue. And I think you do a wonderful job of, you know, pigeon and hawk is both this metaphor and also a kind of internal struggle that the speaker is observing, but that the he, the nameless one in the poem is also, it feels, going through. So that it's very powerfully enacted. You know, you're not just describing it. You're taking us there, especially with those wonderful questions. Thank you. Such a powerful poem because throughout, even before we get to the line that says these things are not inevitable, we feel the potential for it. We're living with a dread. We're living bracing to like, even as a listener or reader of the poem, how am I going to come out of this? How am I going to walk away with the experience that I'm now going to be um, carrying? And um, I think that's so useful because it also reminds us that's a big part of what it feels like to live in a black body. And it's not just about a life and death situation, though it often can be, but these other things. And this is a moment where, you know, white people who have never wanted to think about the reality of racism are beginning to say, oh, that might be real. This is an important way that racism presents, you know, as a burden that we live with preparing for. Always stealing ourselves for the possibility. It could happen. If you're white, obviously you don't, you don't have to imagine that. Yeah, it has the power of both memory and imagined form because that questioning that the poem goes through is a larger questioning, I think. And in the same way that the demands or declarations in Tracy's poem are, are uh, declarations about other things besides the declaration of independence. These are questions about other things, I think. And his being unnamed is so powerful and feels true to the experience, but also true to this kind of namelessness that saves the speaker in this one instance, it feels, but also the unnamed things that the poem really names, violence, the threat of violence, sexual violence. There's, there's so much powerfully 
contained. It's, it's a kind of version of the silence I was talking about with Tracy's poem, the unspokenness. I was also thinking in that poem, you know, the line is kind of a unit of breath sometimes. Uh, that's one way of thinking of the poetic line. And I was thinking about what that means uh, in our time when I can't breathe becomes a refrain. And uh, Terence, your poem, George Floyd, which was obviously written directly in response to recent events, so powerfully enacts some of these questions. And I would like to hear it, but I wonder if there's anything you need to tell us before we do hear it. So, you know, I typically uh, enjoy being stuck in poems and working through poems. That's mostly how I survived the coronavirus. And um, I think even one of the poems I sent with this one, I've been working on for about three years and feeling, you know, pretty good about that. It's a great distraction. But, you know, I'm downtown. And so one of the very earliest marches happened. I think it was a Friday. They met in Washington Square. So I went and... Um, what I thought when I was out there was that, you know, the person who had the bullhorn was the messenger, which is not the same thing as saying the person with the bullhorn had the message. And that was extremely discouraging for me um, to think about where are the, the real leaders, the sort of um, moments when we can lay forward a real kind of message about what we're going to do when we get to these, our destinations, where we've been marching towards. And so, you know, I went back in and I thought about that. And so uh, the next morning I woke up. And I just sort of, I wrote this poem and I feel like I sent it to you the same day. I want to say I worked on it all day. I, I know I must've worked on it for at least eight hours before deciding to just put it in to you and seeing what happened before I did anything else to it, before I thought anything else about it because of the way language is just sort of just colliding. And um, I think a, a bunch of what I've been listening to is really about that question. I think in Marilyn's poem, there's this something against cynicism when she says he might take his knee off of his throat so that when he doesn't take his knee off of his throat, it is very easy to fall into a sort of cynical position at this moment or lean towards more cynical messages about how we're going to get through this moment. Uh, but that might is just so powerful. Uh, that revising is so powerful, which is what I think is happening in Tracy's poem, um, saying whatever the doctrines are, we know at their heart, there's something like humanity. They've been written by humans, whatever they look like. And so we do have to kind of keep revisiting that vision that they lay forward for the country because the country keeps changing. But all of us are looking for someone with a message as powerful and as goodness as Trump's messages are coming from the other direction, if you follow me. All right, so here's the poem. George Floyd. You can be a bother who dyes his hair, Dennis Rodman, blue in the face of the man kneeling and blue in the face, the music of his wrist. Watch your mouth is little more than a door being knocked out of the ring of fire around the afternoon came evenings, bell of the ball and chain around the neck of the unarmed brother, ground down to gunpowder. Dirt can be inhaled like a puff, the magic bullet point of transformation, both kills and fires the life of the party like it's 1999 bottles of beer on the Wall Street. People who sleep in the streets do not sleep without counting yourself lucky rabbit's foot of the mountain lion. Do not sleep without making your bed of the riverboat gambling. There will be no stormy weather on the water board to death. Any means of killing time is on your side of the bed of the truck transporting Emmett till the break of day. Emmett till the river runs dry your face, the music of the spheres. Emmett till the end of time. That was George Floyd by Terrence Hayes, which ran in the June 22nd, 2020 issue of The New Yorker. 
I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new a translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Oh. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Uh, it's incredible to hear all three of these poems, which I think are in dialogue with each other in some ways. Um, Terrence and Marilyn's yours very specifically in the same issue. But I think all of these poems resonate with the national conversation that's happening right now, whether it's about racism and state violence or, you know, memory and, and the future. I think all these things are emphasizing in their own way the terrible timelessness of these subjects. And I've been thinking a lot about the quote, it's difficult to get the news from poetry, or uh, also I, I tend to think a lot about protest in poetry. Your poems uh, convince us that the world is part of the poem. You know, I, I think for many years, it was seen as something far outside and you had to create your own sort of special sealed off hermetic world. Um, I'm really wanting us to talk about the way that poetry is working now? Do you think poetry in general is more engaged uh, than poetry in the past? Or, or do you think it has a certain urgency now? How do you think of news and poetry, protest and poetry now and poetry? I feel like a new generation of poets are emerging who are steeped equally in activism and poetry. And the, by poetry, I really mean craft and, and uh, tradition and um, an understanding that it is an embodied form. I think that understanding was gone for a long time. I mean, I came of age as a writer of poems, you know, in the 90s. Um, and I loved what poems allowed me to think and see. But the feeling of a visceral encounter was something that was rare. Poetry almost felt like philosophy. I'm sitting and I'm going to reflect and I'm going to make headway in certain logical possibilities. I think now that's still alive, but it's coupled with an impulse or a, a confidence to invoke feeling. And even like Terence's poem, as soon as you step into that poem, you are being moved and pushed around and your mind is being made to think backward and forward at the same time, outward. And, and so it becomes a physical act. Um, I think that's such an effective way of thinking about the world that we live in and reminding us that we can come to these questions and problems with a full self. I would also add this, this question of, uh, you know, what the coronavirus how we got through that moment, which is we're still in it. So I was relying on poetry to be just as Tracy described it, as an, an escape, really, um, to not have to contend with just the anxieties that, that happen in the news. And so I still hope that poetry in its best form does, in fact, allow me to check out. But we're always trying to figure out how to like let the world come into our poems without 
overwhelming our own sense of imagination and sense of song. And so these moments do ask us, I mean, are you going to look up from, from the page? Are you going to look out the window and respond that way? And I think, um, you know, people have different kinds of scales for how they might respond to it. Certainly if, if it's someone that has your body and your, your skin outside your window, you're going to look up with some sense of urgency. But, um, I think that's always been true um, in various forms in the poetic tradition that, yes, some people are paying more attention um, to what's outside the window and and what's inside. But I think we all have some point where we make a decision about whether we put our head up or put it down. How do you uh, take that, Marilyn? I was just thinking that um, we probably go through some kind of peaks of urgency during which poetry can't avoid taking on the world. And, and I, I came of age in the 60s and there was the Black Arts Movement and there was Robert Bly refusing the National Book Award and poetry comes for us in this way when the world needs it. Then poets can't stop themselves. They can't avoid taking it on. I remember once hearing um, Seamus Heaney say that he had tried not to write political poetry. And then at one point he was asked to write something specifically for a specific occasion. And that was a turning point. He couldn't not write about the situation in Northern Ireland. So um, I don't know. I feel that in some ways, writing a poem is like holding a shield up as you go into the world. The poem is something you create, but it's also something that becomes your protection from the pain and, and ugliness that you have to see. You have to see it, but... You also have to, I think, protect your essential innocence. I love that. And then after it's written and in the world, it can be a shield for other people. It can be what people hold on to when they're needing something. They remember a line. Oh, man, that was a wonderful poem. I remember this line, and I repeat it to myself when I need it. Can I ask y'all a question? Please. Who do you imagine on the other side of it? Like, who are those people? Um, I mean, it's such a typical question we get, right? But it feels particularly pointed now. We're thinking about when we're sending these poems out into the world and they're in New Yorker and other places. What do those people look like? I mean, do y'all think about that kind of question? That's such a good question because so often <clears throat> when I'm in my little bubble of sitting at the desk and writing, I try and not think about anybody else, you know, and sometimes if I'm asked who's the audience that you envision, if I'm at like a Q&A, I want to say I'm, the audience is mm. a secondary concern, but that it feels different now. You're right. I'd never used or imagined the shield metaphor, but it is a gesture of solidarity and love and belief to someone who you believe is in the position of threat, you know, being threatened, being vulnerable, and also not being um, given the sense of authority that, that is rightfully theirs, you know, someone who's not going to be 
ask to opine. Um, that feels like a lifeline. That is something that makes me want to speak quietly and urgently at the same time to that, that person. But then there's also the hope, you know, Lucille Clifton had that beautiful uh, answer. I write poetry to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And there's something exciting about having a poem appear in the New Yorker that might cause a little bit of unrest and someone who might feel disinclined to think about questions of race and survival and compassion. Um, I feel like that's, that's more and more one of the charges that I, I feel I've given myself as a poet. Do we feel those charges have changed most recently or are they evolved over time? Or uh, I remember writing the poems that became Jelly Roll, which were love poems. And there was a war that started in the midst of it. Uh, I can't even recall which of the Gulf Wars it was, you know? And I remember thinking, why am I writing love poems? And then I thought, well, I have to write love poems. Um, and so there's a weird way in which we're always in dialogue, but sometimes you can feel out of step. And then suddenly, sometimes the thing you've been working on seems so completely relevant again. Uh, I just wonder if you're engaged differently right now, or you're working on long projects that suddenly change. I know Terrence, you're saying in many ways, your sonnets came about quite directly uh, as kind of protest, but they're not, you know, only direct, they're also songs. Yeah, I like the, the shield as well. I generally say that, you know, um, I say to my students in the first day, poetry is a tool and a weapon, you know, both kinds of notions. And so that idea of the shield somehow fits re really perfectly between that. It's a defense, um, but it also can be like a little bit of a shelter if you need it. So um, that's usually what I'm trying to do. I'm just usually trying to think about my day-to-day -day practice as creating tools to get through, weapons to fight, you know, the way other people seem to think about language. Um, but it does get pretty loud. Um, so certainly these last four years have been at quite a volume that I just, it would take a political effort to ignore politics, in fact. It would be a very strict statement to say, like, I just don't want to hear any of it. So I just, I'm often just trying to figure out how to let that be part of what I'm going to be doing anyway, as opposed to stopping me from from what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, the, the question of like what a poem does in a New Yorker or what it does in the world has just been interesting to me because of this last poem, because I got so many uh, texts and emails from people asking me if the first line was a typo or not. So they're like, isn't it you can be a brother who dies? You know, in various ways. Some people saying the New Yorker screwed your poem up, you need to get at them. And I won't even go through how many of those people were like people with PhDs or, <laughs> but it was a range. And you know, out of that, I just said, well, you know, I too, when I first wrote the poem, meant brother. And when I saw that it was wrong, I left it that way because I thought this is the surprise that happens in a poem. So let it be that. But ultimately my answer over many, you know, opportunities to answer this question, which became, you know what, man, I'm just hoping people pay attention. I think I'm generally trying to, be on the side of people who are paying, or in dialogue even, with people who are just paying attention, that kind of reader. I think that's why so many of us become poets, right? Because you see this, these, these things, these small, curious objects that teach you how to pay different attention. And then that becomes a kind of lifeline. Like, oh, right. If I look at the world better, then I can see both possibilities, brother and brother. Totally. The truth, the truth will reveal itself. Yeah. yeah. 
I wonder about form, uh, just because I brought it up a little bit before. How do you think form is playing for you all? Uh, are you discovering it? Are you imposing it? Is it revealing itself? Uh, all of the above? Terrence, you were talking a little bit about going from a speech to a poem in a weird way, like going from a megaphone to the slippage and power of, of a poem. Uh, I'm just curious what we think about form and how it's speaking in this moment. I mean, you know, I, I, you don't want me to talk for an hour about this. <laughs> Black people do have a, some experience with like constraints. And so the exercise of trying to work out one's expression in the constraints of form to me feels very metaphorical for what it means to be like in any one of our bodies and trying to figure out how to still be creative and be free while in this particular kind of seeming constraint. But in fact, it's a great illuminator of, of things, I think, if you think about form, both in our bodies and on the page similarly. So I like form because it does allow me to know where the borders are and what I can push, and it lets me know when I'm breaking the rules, which is, is a good thing to know. Marilyn, what do you think about form in this moment and how, how you see constraint or freedom or both? I'm sitting here grinning because I've been so happy to see the young generation of African-American poets discover form as a back back in the day it was, it was the white man's thing and I felt for so long that I was completely alone out there scratching away with my quill pin. I believe that formal constraints are such a tool for growth. They lead you to discover things you don't know. And especially to use formal constraints when you're writing about that world that you know, you think you know, out there and you set up some kind of a, a lens. Let's say you look through it and you see the world differently too. And what when when your view is changed, your poem is changed, your understanding is changed, your wisdom is deepened. And um, I just um, seriously believe that a generation of poets confronting the issues the world is throwing at us, but confronting those issues through form is going to take us farther than we've been. And I think more deeply into understanding. I like it when form is an element of a, you know, a larger project that is characterized by many different things. And then that choice, like you've both been saying, it activates a, a different kind of attention and the constraints invite different possibilities. Um, I love it because of the revelation that form and, and pressure, really, it's pressure, can bring about. I also like it because in my imagination, these types of choices embolden me to recognize what I'm doing as research. You know, I'm going to apply these tools and processes to the questions I have, and that will yield something that will yield a kind of information, a possibility, or, or, you know, what I think many of us are trying to do, a form of intervention. And that's really exciting to me. I go back and forth in my head about, you know, sometimes I feel discouraged when people say that poetry is self-expression. And that's 
where they begin and end. Because I've always felt like, no, I, I don't know what I want to say until this work has been done. And then I arrive at something that I can't not say. But there is so much that has been silenced in our community, so much that has been said but willfully ignored. And so I think that there is something important about allowing that which needs to be expressed to take on so many different forms and appearances and intensities so that it can be heard and heard and registered and registered again and again. Well, and I think you all are talking in some way about discovery as well and, and how form can lead you to discovery, but also hone what that discovery is. Um, and I love, Tracy, what you're saying about something you need to say once you learn what it is in a weird way. That brother slash bother, that pigeon and hawk, that question and answer is, is always sort of this interplay I see across the poems. I've been thinking a little bit about, and the New Yorker is thinking about, dissent uh, and what dissent means. And I wonder how you approach thinking of dissent in the broadest sense, either in poetry or in art or in our time. I feel awkward about this, but it's a pitch for my forthcoming picture book, <laughs> which uh, just by incredible serendipity is coming out in September. It's about a little girl named Lubaya who is an introvert and she makes drawings and her parents are activists and they let her make drawings on the backs of old protest posters. And uh, at some point in the story, there's a headline breaking news and something big has happened. And the mother says, oh, we've got to march again. Lubaya, can we have those old posters back? And in the last scene, they're at a march holding these protest posters that have this little girl's crayon drawings on the back. And people are saying that her drawings are powerful dissent. She's an artist. She just was following her need to make art. But it turns into what people need that teaches them something about being human. And... Uh, in some ways, I hope that this will be a book that will teach children that art is something that can be used in, as a political weapon. Well, it's so true that um, what's dangerous to those who see it as dangerous is the perspective that says, I'm going to find meaning where I haven't been told that it already exists. I'm going to ask questions that haven't been authorized. Those are the things that make people want to make art, right? It's that vague restlessness um, and the desire for something better or different or more that makes us want to sit down and do this stuff. Um, and that is such a beautiful and pure and natural form of dissent. But I think that's why somebody is invested in sending us back to square one so often with the question, why does art matter? Why does poetry matter? Because they know it matters, because they know that it means if you invest in this process, you are not going to follow this other um, dead process that, that we need you to follow. Yeah, less sustainable process. I just kept putting adjectives in front of that word. Um, you know, cynical dissent versus faithful dissent. 
poetic descent versus militant descent. So the noun is the same. We are still talking about the same thing, but the way that that happens uh, manifests itself so differently. For example, with the dude um, in the park um, where the woman's like calling the cops, he's bird watching, she's got her dog. But I know that there was sort of a, a kind of a backlash because he said, I'm not going to press charges. So that to me seems to be like graceful. Um, but there's again a wave of sort of responses which say like, no, this is a historical moment. You need to pursue that. So again, d debates on the kind of dissent, like I would say his decision to like not pursue it is a kind of graceful dissent. And people who say this is something else is a more kind of cynical dissent. And so I just seem to see that playing itself out a lot. And I would just say like in every case, I'm going to be on the side of something with a bit more figurative gesture to it, a bit more resonance to it than like the kind of black and white stuff that sometimes seems to be happening and things to me that seem to be putting us in the right direction, saying that there is a capacity for forgiveness, there's a capacity for redemption, um, and still really trying to insist um, that the poem's gonna tell me what's right, uh, not a doctrine. That's a powerful question, and the difference between what you're supposed to write and what you need to write, I guess. Again, it goes back to discovery, and maybe that's as powerful a word uh, discovery and dissent, they needn't be mutually exclusive. And in fact, there might be some part of dissent that requires discovery, requires new words or new worlds or, or both. It kind of brings me to sort of two last questions. Are there things in the tradition or uh, older modes or styles or forms that you see being reinvented right now, even since uh, the pandemic? And then also it's a question about the future and where we go from here. Where do you see poetry going? What do you think or hope? I'm trying to think um, in terms of poetry. I recognize in terms of just life and existence and the consciousness of young black people and people of color. I feel like they are returning to a, it's more than just, you know, what, what our parents used to call race pride, you know, like, okay. But it's a holistic sense of self, community, history, and the desire to manifest that um, as a choice, as a stance. I, I, I haven't like ever talked about it yet. Like, I don't know what I call it to myself, actually. But I am I'm very moved by that. And I feel like this is the path out. This is the path toward um, justice and, and clarity. And I think there's a corollary in the art that this generation of, of poets and activists, what they're making. You know, um, I'm already starting to try to work on my syllabus because I am so worried about how these kids are gonna focus um, when the fall rolls around. So I knew immediately I was thinking about like, so, you know, graduate students, but of course, I have a 20-year-old and a 17-year-old at home, so it's even closer than that, you know, undergrad, high school kids. And I just am constantly trying to figure out, like, what would I be able to do in poetry? What would I be able to show them and give them to help them understand, uh, to get away from it or to have these tools that we're talking about? And so generally, I have said to both those groups, my kids in my home and the students that I'm teaching is like, well, you know, poetry is about problem solving. I mean, this goes back to this question of like just self-expression. Like there is a way that if you're really writing poems, you're often 
solving problems, revising things and trying to see, you know, it's figurative, it's, it's math in some ways, right? So that exercise is trying to prepare you to, to solve problems, to solve problems emotionally and logically and creatively. So that's pretty much the thing that I'm standing on as I go into the class. So that's not despair necessarily. It's, it's again, another kind of math. Like what is it that we could do for anybody under 30 right now to suggest that this thing that we're offering in the way that we've made our lives is gonna help you go forward. I do believe it, as, as I said, I mean, that's all intelligence is, is problem solving. So the more exercise you have in that, maybe the, little, the more adaptable uh, you are in a moment like this, but you know, maybe that's just hope. Marilyn, uh, would you close us out? One of my interests is multiculturalism. And one thing that has given me hope during this period is seeing a dialogue opening up between or among poets of many colors. So I see it's wonderful that we have Joy Harjo in in a position as Poet Laureate right now because she's bringing so many different people into the dialogue and saying, we're all poets, we're here, we come from different traditions, but we're all looking at the same goal. And um, that encourages me. I, I'm, I'm really happy to see the activism of people like Joy or Laylee Long Soldier, you know, the, they're making the circle larger. I think it's Cornelius's poem about making the the house larger. Well, the house needs to become larger because this is this is a house of a nation that has to learn how to include many peoples, and uh, I think that's I think that's happening. Well, thank you all so much. Uh, Tracy, Marilyn, Terrence, thanks so much for speaking with me today. It's been an honor. And uh, I love the way, different ways you think about liberation and, and your poems, but also in, a, in the conversation we had. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, thank you Marilyn and Terrence. Thank you. thank you. It was an honor to be with all of you. Yeah, yeah it was great. Declaration by Tracy K. Smith, Pigeon and Hawk by Marilyn Nelson, and George Floyd by Terrence Hayes can be found on newyorker.com. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses with help from Hannah Eisenman. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. 
he was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.